The book of Jude tonight. We're going to dive into the book of Jude. It's the next to last book of the Bible. And as I shared with you many months ago when we started our study of James, the Lord led me to do a series on Wednesday night on both James and Jude because they are the only two books in the Bible written by Jesus' brothers, um, James and Jude. There's another reason, though, why Jude has a special place in my heart. Jude was the very first book that I ever studied in depth after I became a Christian. I was 10 years old when I accepted Christ as my Savior, and God gave me a voracious appetite for his word. And soon after I got saved, we had a special speaker come to our church, and I was so blown away by his knowledge of the word of God that I wanted to spend some time sort of picking his brain. And I went up after he spoke, and uh, I, I asked him several questions, and, and one of them was, where do I get started? Where do I, I mean, 66 books. I want to start really studying in depth the Word of God. Where do I get started? And he, he only gave me sort of two suggestions. One, he said, I would start in the New Testament rather than the Old. He said, you'll get there, but start in the New Testament first. And start with a small book, something that's manageable. So I started going through the table of contents, and I started, well, there's four books in the New Testament that only have one chapter. And something just led me to the book of Jude. And all I'll say is, a year later, I was done studying the book of Jude. I spent a whole year from 10 years of age to 11 years of, of age studying the book of Jude in depth. I love this book for many reasons, and I want to just share with you over the next four weeks just some of the reasons why the book of Jude is, has a special place in my heart, and I hope it will have a special place in your heart. Again, one of the reasons why is because it's one of only two books in the Bible written by someone who grew up in the same home that Jesus grew up in. Please follow along. As I read the first four verses, that's all we're going to cover tonight. And from these verses, we're going to see in verse 1, Jude's position. In verse 2, we're going to see Jude's prayer. And then in verses 3 and 4 tonight, we're going to see Jude's plea. From Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, wrapped in the love of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. Dear friends, although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation, I now feel compelled instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men have secretly slipped in among you, men who long ago were marked out for the condemnation I'm about to describe, ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil and who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude. Notice instead of identifying himself, even though he was the Lord's half-brother, that he does not identify himself that way. He identifies himself rather as the slave of Jesus Christ. Our identity is really important. We need to know who we are. And one of the first things that James 
shares with us is what he believes is his identity. He is a slave or servant of Jesus Christ. It is the Greek word doulos. It is one who willingly gives themselves up to another's will. In fact, it described and was used in Bible times as, as those who were sort of the under rowers in those boats. You ever see the movie Ben-Hur? Those that would row underneath and would push those boats or move those ancient boats along. I mean, that was, that was like the lowest spot you could get. Nothing was too low, if you will, for the doulos servant. And James is, though, giving dignity here to that term for us as Christians. He's saying, when we realize that we can be the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who occupies the highest place in the universe, the one who one day will have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jude says, what better identity could we have than that? And what more dignity could we have throughout our life than saying, my whole life is wrapped up in being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who simply makes myself available to Jesus every day and said, Jesus, as we talked about Sunday in our Call of God series, here I am. Here I am. Now, he does also identify himself as the brother of James, which is unusual. I think why he's doing that is he is saying to his audience, if they don't know, Yes, I am the half-brother of Jesus, but he doesn't make that the main thing. He connects himself to James, who is, again, another one of the Lord's brothers and who becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He was a great early church leader, James. You read a lot about James and, and the strategic part he played in the early church in the book of Acts many times. But most of the time when people were identifying themselves Back in Bible times, they weren't saying, I'm the brother of somebody. They would say, I'm the son of somebody, which also reminds us that by this time, as we know, by his absence in the Gospels, especially later on, that probably Joseph died at a fairly young age and was off the scene and was no longer around at this time. So I want you to keep the fact, though, in mind throughout our study of Jude that Jude was certainly influenced, even though he did not become a believer until after the Lord rose from the dead, that Jude was still influenced as a child, as an adolescent, growing up in the same home with Jesus as his brother. And you'll see some of that influence throughout this letter that he writes. Notice that his authority in writing this letter is not based on the fact that he was the brother of Jesus, but that he is the servant or slave of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting that Jude's name is short for Judas because Jude is going to talk to us a lot about those that are not genuine, those that are not sincere, those that are pretenders, those that are part of the community of believers those who may be following, but not in their heart. And certainly Judas was maybe the greatest example in the Bible of someone that was as close to Jesus, heard his teachings, saw his miracles, but never had his heart changed 
to really have a love for Jesus and who ended up betraying him. That's why, obviously, after the betrayal of Judas, most people with the name of Judas either went by Jehuda, which is another form of, which is sort of an elongated form of Jude, which means praise God, or they went to a shortened form of Judas, like Jude does here, which is Jude. So that's from Jude. And his position is he is a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He says this letter is to those who are called, wrapped in the love of God, and kept for Jesus Christ. I want you to see four things, actually, in verses 1 and 2 that pertain to all of us as servants of Jesus Christ. Because not only is Jude a servant of Jesus Christ, but if you're here tonight and you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I are to be servants of Jesus Christ as well. And the same things that were true for Jude and for his audience are also true of us. We are called, we are loved, we are kept, and we are encouraged. Notice each of these with me. First of all, called. Isn't it interesting that God brought these two together the week after or just a few days after I started this six-week Call of God series on Sunday, and we started looking at that Sunday, and now here again that word pops up? It's the fact that God invites us and summons us to his purpose in this life. God does not just call us to salvation, just to have a relationship with him. Remember, salvation is not the end, it's just the beginning. The purpose of God is for, to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. That's the purpose of why we're saved. Not just to have our sins forgiven, not just to enter into a personal relationship with God, not just to have a ticket to heaven for all of eternity. It is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so God has a purpose and plan and will for each of us as his children, and he calls us to that. I shared with you a couple verses Sunday, but I want to share another one with you tonight. But before I do that, let me remind you of the couple that I shared on Sunday. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, says, Brothers and sisters, you are partakers of a heavenly calling. And then Paul, in Philippians 3, 14, says, I press toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The call from heaven and the call toward heaven. The call to set our affection on things above, not things on the earth, Colossians 3, verse 2. But I want to share another one with you. Keep your finger in Jude and go back to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and verse 9. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and verse 9, Paul says, He is the one, God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling not based on our works, but on his own purpose and grace. I, I especially want to draw you back to why God called us. It wasn't because of anything in us. <laughs> it was because of his grace and though it was with his purpose in mind, you see. And then I love this. Granted to us, don't miss this, in Christ Jesus, when? Before time began. Wow. God, before he even formed us in our mother's womb, had a calling in mind even before he created us. That's why I said, as we said Sunday, 
Our creation and the way God made us is always tied to our calling. God doesn't do anything by accident or haphazardly. God created us specifically and intently and intentionally and deliberately so that we could fulfill our calling. We are called. That's why it's so sad whenever Christians, we live our life sometimes purposelessly. Because if we understand that God has called us, there should be no day that we live on earth that we live purposelessly. If we're pursuing his calling, we always have a purpose. If nothing else, we have a purpose in discovering our calling and finding out what it is and, and then going deeper into our calling. And even once we get into it, sort of maximizing our calling and strengthening our calling. I've been doing that now for the past 36 years as a pastor. You never get, in a sense, to the end of your calling, if you will. There's always more out there for us to experience within our calling. But I want us to know that God not only created us and not only saved us, he has called us. And that's so important. Then back to Jude, we're also loved. And I love the way the Net Bible translates it. It says we are wrapped in the love of God. And the reason why the Net translated it that way is notice that Jude is telling us we're not loved by God. Very importantly, we're loved what? In God. Don't miss that. It's one thing to say you're loved by God. It's another whole thing to say, no, no, guess what? We're loved in God. In other words, we're in God. Therefore, how much more loved could you be? And also, by the way, the original is, is used here. It's the idea that Jude is communicating to us that we are permanent objects of God's love. We sung about that tonight in our worship. God's love never runs out on us. Never forget that God has always loved you. He's loving you right now. And he always will love you throughout eternity. With God, the honeymoon is never over. You're never loved more by God than you are right now, and you're never loved any less by God than you are right now, and you never will be. There, there's never a time where you are out of God's love because we are literally wrapped in the love of God. I mean, talk about an encouraging thought. If you and I just meditated on that and thought about that every day, that every day we get up, we're literally wrapped up in a God hug. That God is literally picking us up and drawing us closer to his heart and closer to him. We are wrapped in the love of God. This is part of our position that Jude's talking about here. And then he says, we're kept. And, and I love the way the net translates this because this is what the original means. We're not kept in Jesus. We're kept for Jesus Christ. What, what, what does he mean by that? We are the Father's loved gift to his Son. You realize that? God the Father honors the obedience and sacrifice of his Son 
by giving us to him for all of eternity so that we can bring him glory throughout eternity. The word kept means to watch over, to guard, and therefore to preserve. God is a sentinel watching over his people. I'm familiar with that word because that was my high school's mascot. We were the Fort Hill Sentinels. Most people are like, what's a sentinel? Because that sort of goes back to the, you know, revolutionary day, you know, patriot type thing. But that's what a sentinel is. Someone who literally guards and watches over someone or something. That's, that's God. In fact, keep your finger there. I love these verses back in the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them my sheep that he talks about in verse 27, eternal life, and they will never perish. How can he say that? Because he's keeping them. And no one will snatch them from my hand. Okay? Then he says in verse 29, oh, by the way, my father who has given them to me, that's the Father's love gift, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand either. So you get that. We're in both the Father's hand and Jesus' hand, and there's no one greater than Jesus or the Father. Therefore, no one's ever going to snatch us from his hand. We're within the love of God. We're within the grip of God and we are going to be watched over and guarded and kept for Jesus Christ throughout eternity. What an amazing position to be in. You want to talk about security and stability. It is for those who know our position or our identity. But Jude doesn't stop there. He prays that mercy, verse 2, and peace and love be lavished on you. Because he's going to talk to them about some tough things. And he's saying, the times in which you are living right now, you're going to need extra mercy and extra peace and extra love. It's going to need to be increased. And so I'm asking God just to pour out his mercy and pour out his peace and pour out that love into your life. Because you're going to need it. I think to myself, if Jude felt that was needed 2,000 years ago, how much more do I feel like God's mercy, peace, and love need to be multiplied to us today? Don't forget, God's mercy is his compassion and willingness and readiness to help those in need. Why is that important, that we receive God's mercy? Because again, as I've talked us before, you and I can't be something to someone else until we receive it first from God. And later on in the book of Jude, notice this with me. I want to go over there. Notice in verse 22, Jude encourages us and exhorts us to have mercy on those who are wavering, saving them even by snatching them out of the fire and have mercy on others coupled with the fear of God, hating even the clothes stained by the flesh. How can we have mercy on others if we're not receiving the mercy of God ourselves and experiencing it? So that's why he starts out that way before he ends that way. We can't give out what we haven't received from God. 
So he says, I'm praying that you receive the mercy of God, that you experience the mercy of God, that you let God's mercy in and let his mercy flow into your life so that you can be a, a, an instrument of mercy to others. Peace, God's inner sense of well-being that's not based on our outward circumstances, but having that inner sense of well-being because of our God's sufficiency because we know that we have the Lord, and because we have the Lord, we have all that we need, and therefore we can be at peace inwardly, though other things around us may be chaotic. And we certainly need that multiplied today, too. And we can't, again, exhibit that peace and express that peace and give that peace out if we're not receiving that peace that passes all understanding that Paul talks about in Philippians 4. And then finally, God's love. And it's not, again, that God is going to love us anymore. It's that you and I will be open to that love. In fact, Jude talks about that, again, over at the end of his letter. Uh, if I can find it here real quick, verse 21. Maintain yourselves in the love of God. We'll talk about that when we get there, but basically it's the idea of us not taking ourselves out of the place where we can truly experience and enjoy the love of God. I'll just give you one illustration, the story of the prodigal son. The father never stopped loving the son, even though he was a prodigal, but the prodigal, by walking away from the father, was not home to really experience the love that the father wanted to bestow upon him. It was only when he repented and came back to that place where the father was that he could truly experience and enjoy that love of the Father. That's what Jude's talking about there. So that's Jude's position and that's Jude's prayer. And I want you to know that when you walk out of here tonight, that you are the servant of the Most High God, Jesus Christ. That you are called, that you are loved, that you are kept, and that you are encouraged encouraged by a free flow of God's mercy, peace, and love. Con continually and constantly flowing into your life at all times. But then notice Jude's plea. And I want to focus on one primary thing. Yes, we're called, we're loved, we're kept, we're encouraged, but God also entrusts us as his servants with unbelievable riches. And I want you to see that tonight here in verses 3 and 4. He says, dear friends, by the way, it's the word beloved, divinely loved ones. Although I have been eager to write or preparing earnestly to write to you about our common salvation, and that just simply means what we share in common. It's not that Jude is saying our salvation is ordinary by any stretch of the imagination. It's extraordinary salvation. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? But he's saying that our salvation is what we share in common. Like, you know what? Because of the days in which we live, I feel compelled, like Jude, to share this at this point with all of us as Christians. I'm going to say something that may shock some of you, but... I believe it's true. Even as Christians, 
We are all natural enemies to a point. Hang in there with me. What do I mean by that? Well, there's more that could divide us, even as Christians, than unite us. We all come from different, maybe, cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. We all may choose to parent differently or have different political views. We all have much diversity, even in the body of Christ. The only thing sometimes that we have in common with each other is what? Our salvation. The fact that we are all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are commanded in the scriptures not to love each other because we have an affinity with one another or because we have all these things alike. We are commanded to love each other for Jesus' sake. That's why we love each other. And that's something we as Christians need to wrap our minds around, especially today. Yes, we have more that divides us or could divide us than what unites us. But we are to be united in the fact that Jesus is our Savior and we choose to love each other for his sake, not necessarily for our own. Okay, sorry, I had to get that out. Jude says, I now feel compelled instead to write to you about something else. Uh, again, I want to stop here because this is important. Do you see what Jude's saying? He's saying, I planned on writing to you about this, but guess what took place? There was a stirring of the Holy Spirit in my heart, and now I feel that that influence of the Spirit to, to move in another direction. We all need to live that way, right? That, that's the Christian life. Nothing wrong with planning, nothing wrong with preparation, but always leave room for the Spirit to be the final guide to lead us to where He wants us to go. And that sometimes there's just that compelling urge within us that comes from God that says, nope, don't go this way or don't do that. Do this or say this. And that's exactly where Jude was at. And, and I want to share that to encourage you because most of you probably know this already, but if you don't, Nicole and I go through that every time we're up here. That, that's part of serving the Lord. You know, there's times where she's leading in worship and she feels the Holy Spirit leading and moving and guiding her to go in a different direction or to stop or to do this. And I'm the same way. I might have a, a, a general, you know, sort of outline put together. But every Sunday and Wednesday when I get up here and I start to speak, the Holy Spirit has other avenues for me to go down that I hadn't planned. So don't. Be discouraged by that when that happens. That's a cool thing. That, that's part of, again, letting the Spirit drive us rather than us being in control. And that's exactly what Jude is saying here. And I also think that he was being compelled, too, by a secondary reason. And that was the things that he was starting to hear were happening in the church. So he says, 
I want to encourage you, exhort you, entreat you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The words contend earnestly are only used once in the New Testament. Or I guess I should say it this way. That Greek word is only used once in the Greek New Testament, and it's here in the book of Jude. It means to strenuously struggle against whatever is opposing something. Okay? Strenuously struggle. It's, it's almost a picture of, of, of a wrestler getting in to an arena and, and wrestling an opponent and, and, you know, the sweat pouring off and, and strenuous. So Jude is saying, Christian, I need to make you aware of something. There are fights worth having. And one of the fights worth having is that we fight for the faith. Now, I'm going to clarify that. That doesn't mean Jude is telling us to be contentious Christians. That's not biblical. That's not one who's filled with the Holy Spirit. We will win no one over being a contentious, obnoxious Christian. But before I get to that, I want to make this note. When the word faith is preceded by the definite article, the, that is differentiating the act of believing or trusting in, in God, which we use to describe faith in God, and the faith. When the faith is used in the New Testament, it is speaking about this. This is the faith. This is God's revelation to us that Jude goes on to say, was once for all entrusted to the saints. And so again, what Jude is reminding us of here tonight is that we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, called, loved, kept, encouraged, but also entrusted. And to entrust means to place into the hands of us for safekeeping or safeguarding. So think about it. God is our sentinel watching over us, and yet he's entrusted us with being a sentinel over the faith. Because why? Because we learn in verse 4 and throughout the rest of this book that God's message has always been attacked. And we're not to fight for it, if you understand then. We are simply to keep it from being, from being diminished or changed in any way, to keep it intact. That's all we are to do, is just to make sure that what was placed into our hands, that we place it into others' hands. And when you think about that, though, again, I don't know about you, but it boggles my mind the responsibility that God gives to us. I mean, this is his word. It, it just reminds us of what God thinks of us. Because if he didn't think much of us, then he wouldn't entrust us with things that were very valuable. Folks, he's entrusted us with 
His Holy Spirit living within us. He's entrusted us with his word. He's entrusted us with many valuable things. He's entrusted us with his church, his people. I mean, there's much that he's entrusted us with, and these are sacred trusts that God has placed into our hands. And we need to just remind ourselves that being a servant is being a steward. And that our whole life is a stewardship of how we are managing the things that God has entrusted to us. So what I'd like us all to do tonight, as as we think about and meditate even on this message, maybe in the days ahead, is what are the things, who are the people that God has entrusted into my care? And how am I doing watching over what God has entrusted to me. Because guess what? One day, each of us is going to give an account of how we have managed the things that God has placed into our hands. This word, entrusted, is used a couple other times in the New Testament. And one of those places is back in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, in the parable of the talents. I'm not going to take time to go there tonight, but most of you know that parable pretty well where Jesus is saying there was a ruler who came and entrusted talents to each individual and then came back after being gone for a while to see what they did with what was entrusted to them. Same word. Our whole life, we realize, is God placing into our hands sacred trusts. What an amazing thought. And that you and I have been given that responsibility by God. No wonder he's training us to rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity. No wonder the Bible says one day that we will even judge the angels. Because that's where God saw man going from the very beginning until man fell into sin. By the way, the reason we know, too, that the Word of God has been attacked throughout history is I'll take you all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis chapter 3, when Satan came in the form of a serpent to tempt Eve. What did he do? He began to cast doubt about the Word of God. He began to twist what God said in Eve's mind. And from there on, that's exactly been Satan's primary thing. I'm going to try in some way to take away the word of God. Why? Because the book of Hebrews says the word of God is living and powerful. And the word of God has the power to transform people's hearts and minds and lives. And if the devil in some way can change or diminish the message of God from reaching in to people, if somehow he can lessen it, he can water it down in some way, then the power and the truth is taken out. And Jesus said it is only knowing the truth that will set people free. And when we abandon the truth, We are no longer safeguarding and safekeeping that which God entrusted to us as his 
saints. For he goes on to say, certain men have secretly slipped in among you, men who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. I am about to describe, and we'll talk about that next week, ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil and who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. A couple things, and then I'm going to wrap it up tonight. Remember I said how this word entrusted that Jude uses in verse 3 was also used in Matthew 25. Keep your finger in the book of Jude and go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for just a moment. I want to show you the one other place where this word is used in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Paul, at the end of this great letter, says to his young friend in the ministry, O Timothy, protect what has been entrusted to you. Wow. Same thing, same concept. Timothy, God has entrusted to you as his servant, as part of your calling, a great trust, a sacred trust. Protect it. Avoid the profane chatter and absurdities of so-called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Protect what has been entrusted to you. Why? Back to Jude. Because there are people who throughout the age of the church and the history of the church have literally come into the church by stealth. That's literally what the words in verse 4, secretly slipped in, mean. We know stealth. We understand, understand stealth today, living in the age of the, the B-2 bomber and the stealth fighter and all of that, things that sort of can go under the radar and not be detected. Jude is painting that same picture 2,000 years ago. He's saying, guess what? There will be people that will come into your church and their purpose will not be to worship the Lord. Their purpose is going to be more like Judas. They're going to be part of your fellowship, but their heart's never really going to be right with God. And you need to be careful of them because they can begin to chip away at the foundation of your church by starting to chip away at God's message. And he says, beware. Beware. And we know that this is true because Jesus even taught in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that there are tares purposefully and very intentionally sown in with the wheat. And Jesus even said, that's not your job to try to pick out who the tares are and separate them. I will do that on judgment day. I'm asking you as my people to have the discernment and the perception spiritually to know the difference and to just safeguard what I've entrusted to you. Your job is not to pick out the wheat and the tares. 
but just simply to know that they are there and that they will always be there until the judgment. By the way, if you want to know where that passage is found, it's Matthew 13, 24 through 30, where Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares. Now here specifically in verse 4, Jude talks about the fact that they turned the grace of God into a license for evil. Even today, many Christians, I believe, misunderstand the grace of God because I'll hear things like, well, you know, in the Old Testament, under the law, God was much more strict and expected much more out of the people then than he does to us today because we're living in the age of grace. If you understand grace, you understand that actually we are held more accountable now than they were under the Old Testament because we have been given greater light. And if you understand grace, grace is not given to us so that we can live however we want. God's grace is given to us so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You see, Over and over again in the Scriptures, Paul even says to the Romans, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.1, God forbid, Paul said. How shall we who are set free from sin live any longer in it? You see, God's grace gives us the power to overcome sin, not live however we want to. Jude is a great book from someone who was so close to Jesus Christ. And I think one of the things that impacts me is the fact that even before maybe Jude became a believer in Jesus Christ, he was, saw his brother out there sharing the message of God, and it wasn't always popular. In fact, we read in many places where those following Jesus continued to drop off as time went on. Because Jesus wasn't about having a big audience. Jesus was about calling people to be disciples. And that's why Jesus would say hard things like, if you're not willing to take up your cross daily, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to deny yourself, you can't be my disciple. And we are called as the church to make disciples. Not to fill our churches, but to make disciples. And the message won't always be popular. And Paul even said to Timothy, keep preaching the word because there will come a time when people will abandon hearing the truth. And they will turn to teachers who tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And Paul says, don't do it, Timothy. Protect what has been entrusted to you, Timothy. Protect it. Guard it. God doesn't hold us responsible for the response. God simply holds us responsible to be faithful to him. What has God entrusted to you tonight? But remember, don't let it overwhelm you. 
Because again, the, the calling of God will not lead you to where the grace of God cannot enable you. And God will flow his grace, his mercy, his peace, and his love into our life continually. And never forget, as you serve the Lord, that you are called, that you are loved, and that you are kept for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for encouraging us tonight, God, but also challenging us tonight. Thank you for this heartfelt message from Jude who had plans to write about salvation and what a great letter that would have been because our salvation is awesome. But Jude said, I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to change direction and go in a different way because the circumstances call for it. Because even from the very beginning, God's word is being chipped away at. And we in the church must preserve the word of God because it has been placed into our hands by God as a sacred trust. So Lord, today, I don't know how this message is hitting each and every one of us. I know how it's hitting me. And I just pray, God, that we would just open ourselves up to you and receive from you each and every day all that you want to pour into us so that we can more effectively be a servant and minister to others for your glory and for your sake. And God, help us, especially in this season where even within the church there is such division to remember that we are not called to love each other because we have all these things alike or in common with each other. We are called to love each other because we have the same Savior, Jesus Christ, and because we love each other for Jesus' sake, not our own. God, go with us tonight. Help us to get a good night of rest in you and excite us, God, to come back on Sunday and be together in your house, in your presence, with your people once again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you next week.